This morning's reading is from John chapter 20, and we're reading verses 19 to 31. On the evening of that first day of the week, when the disciples were together with the doors locked for fear of the Jewish leaders, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. After he said this, he showed them his hands and sighed. The disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. Again Jesus said, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. And with that he breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive anyone's sins, their sins are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. Now Thomas, also known as Didymus, one of the twelve, was not with the disciples when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see the nail marks in his hands, and put my finger where the nails were, and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. A week later, his disciples were in the house again, and Thomas was with them. Though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here. See my hands. Reach out your hand and put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. Thomas said to him, My Lord and my God. Then Jesus told him, Because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Amen, and thanks be to God for his word. Let's pray. Father, we ask that as we come to your word that we have heard read and we reflect on it together, that the words of my mouth and the meditation of all our hearts might be pleasing to you. Amen. I wonder if I asked you, it's all right, I'm not going to ask you to tell me, if you had a nickname when you were at school, what it would be. Ah, there's a few smiles there already, aren't there? I can tell them behind the masks. It's okay, I'm not going to inquire. But there's some great nicknames in the Gospels. The the disciples obviously had nicknames. Um, Peter, we famously know, was was called the Rock. It's a great nickname. Um, John was later called the Beloved Disciple. And John and his brother James were also known as the Sons of Thunder. That's a great name, isn't it? And Thomas goes down his history as Doubting Thomas. That's a dreadful nickname. Who'd want to be known like that, you know? Isn't doubt the opposite of faith? Isn't it the opposite of believing? Sometimes, you know, Christians sometimes are honest enough to admit that they've got doubts, but they they, they tell me that as if they were confessing that they used to be a shoplifter. You know, it's it's quite a bit embarrassing. I, I really shouldn't, but, you know, I do have some doubts. What an awful nickname. Who'd want to be known in the church as doubting Thomas or doubting John or doubting whatever it is. It's a bit rubbish. In fact, the nickname that we've known Thomas with is a a little bit unfair. First of all, it's not what the Bible calls him. Luke, sorry, John tells us that he was known as Thomas Didymus, 
which doesn't mean Thomas the Diddy. It means Thomas the Twin. We don't know why he was called that, but pretty obviously he must have had a, a twin. So there was Thomas the Twin. But more than that, it's unfair for this reason. Was Thomas really a doubter any different from the rest of them? If you look at the Gospel of Luke, it says this, as the woman saw Jesus and ran back from the tomb and told the disciples, it said, the men did not believe the woman because their words seemed like nonsense to them. I've been loving that verse in the last few months. For a start, it highlights a problem that churches have in so many ways when men don't believe women. And that's another whole sermon, isn't it? But just think about it for a minute. What happened on that Easter? The disciples were told that the tomb was empty and they said, I do not believe it. And they kept on not believing it until they saw Jesus appear before them and they saw his wounds and they saw his side and they knew he was alive. So when Thomas says, unless I see the nails and the marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. He's not saying anything that the others hadn't said. It was just that he wasn't there when Jesus appeared on that first Easter Sunday evening. I don't know where he was. Had he gone for a walk? Had he gone gone to the pub? We don't know, but he wasn't there. And so he says what they had all said. I can't believe this tale as much as I want to until I see it for myself. My reason for saying that is a bit... We've singled Thomas out as the doubter, which isn't fair. And here's the thing. Today, if you're sitting as a Christian saying, I have got doubts, you're not the only one. And maybe that's simply what you need to hear today, is that your doubts are all right. You're not alone. In fact, if we were honest, we would find that all disciples doubt. And that is liberating in itself. Let me give you a few examples. John the Baptist You know the story of John the Baptist, the bold guy who shouted that Jesus was here, who said, this is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, who pointed to Jesus. And yet we find John the Baptist, several months later, in prison, awaiting execution. And he sent his disciples to Jesus and said, ask him if he really is the Messiah. Or should we expect someone else? John the Baptist, who was about to give his life for God's mission, doubted. So maybe you're not alone. And here's a great quote, a more modern quote. Oh, that's the wrong quote. I think I've messed that up. I'm just going to have to read this. Here's a, a great quote Where is my faith? Even deep down, there is nothing but emptiness and darkness. In my soul, I feel just that terrible pain of loss, of God not wanting me, of God not being God, of God not existing. Did I make a mistake? The quote is from Mother Teresa. Mother Teresa, who the church looks up to in so many ways for all that she did, her faith that shaped her life. And here was a woman who knew 
what it was to wonder at times if there really was a God. We creep around with our doubts. We wonder about them. We don't talk about them. We pretend they're not there. The interesting thing is the Bible doesn't do anything of the sort. In fact, any question that you've got that makes you doubt your faith, if you read the Scripture, you'll find it's already there. It's already dealt with. How do I believe in a good God when there's so much suffering in my life? Whole book of Job asks that question. How can I believe in a good God when history just keeps on going on and on and on with all its injustice and all its pain and nothing seems to get any better? Book of Ecclesiastes spends the whole book asking that same question. What about injustice in the world? Greedy people who seem to do better than innocent people. The whole book of Psalms asks that question. The point is that these questions were not things written by skeptics trying to disprove faith. They were written by people of faith, people of the book, people of the Lord, wrestling with what it all meant. And now that quote. Surely while we teach that faith ought to be certain and assured, we cannot imagine any certainty that is not tinged with doubt or any assurance that is not assailed by anxiety. Now, you might think that's some trendy modern bishop that wrote that. It was actually John Calvin talking about that wrestling that faith has with doubt. Honest doubt is not the opposite of faith. It's trying to struggle through and work it out to find out where God is. If we believe in a big God, then it raises all sorts of questions why the world is the way it is. And if we have faith, then we wrestle with those questions in prayer and day by day. If you are a doubter, now let me say that again, because you are a doubter, this passage is about you. It's interesting what Jesus says to Thomas as he shows him the proof. He says, oh, again, I've got my slides out of order. He says this, he says, have you believed because you've seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen me yet have come to believe. Jesus is saying to Thomas, look, you found this difficult. Yep. But you know what? There's going to be a whole load of people come after you. Whole generations of Christians that are not going to see what you've seen, and yet they're going to struggle and find it in faith. Blessed are they who do that and find me. And the book then goes on to say these words, talking directly from the author, probably John, directly to us that the whole testimony of the book is written that generations of Christians might come to believe who will not have seen the things that that first generation saw. So what is it that this passage invites us to wrestle to believe? We're talking about Easter, about the resurrection, about the tomb being empty, and John, in this passage, in fact, the whole of the gospel writers want to leave us in no doubt. We're not talking about a sort of sense that Jesus is still with us and he's alive today. It's much more than that. We're actually talking about Jesus physically having risen from the tomb. It's empty. He's alive. You can touch him. And the fish is great. 
In fact, it's interesting that the Bible stories tell us not much about the risen Jesus other than he ate. It's really important. He physically ate. He really was alive. Paul will go on to say that 500 people saw him. But it matters. It matters because Paul says this later on. If he's not been raised, then we're preaching a lot of garbage. And your faith's a lot of garbage. In fact, it's worse than that. If there isn't a resurrection, then it's not just a cruel joke and a lie, but we're telling lies at every funeral. Now, I believe that Jesus fed 5,000 people, and I believe that Jesus healed people, and I believe that Jesus walked on water. But you know what? If I didn't believe those miracles, or if I struggled, in one sense, it wouldn't matter. I could still believe that he was the Lord and the bread of life. But the resurrection is utterly different, because it's not just a miracle. It's the day where God changed everything. Now, of course, people might say, how can you believe in a resurrection? These things don't happen. We don't experience these things. It's interesting, on on Good Friday, Professor Alice Roberts, who is the president of the UK Humanists Association, caused a storm because she sent out a tweet. And the tweet said this, just a little reminder today, dead people don't come back to life. Now, it caused an absolute storm on a Twitter because, for a start, it was a very rude thing to tweet out on a Christian holy day. And a lot of people who were not believers said and called her out for it. But actually, it's more than that. It's a bit silly. Because it misunderstands the whole nature of the Christian belief at Easter. We don't believe that dead people come back to life. I've never met a dead person that's come back to life, and neither have you. We don't believe that that's something that happens in our experience. And that's not because we're sophisticated modern people who don't believe in miracles or anything like that. Thomas didn't believe that dead people came back to life. The disciples didn't believe that dead people came back to life. Why? Because just like Professor Alice Roberts, they'd never seen like that happen before. They knew in their experience that doesn't happen. Until it did. An unrepeatable act, never experienced before and never to be experienced again. Now, actually, we do have another example of that. And it's this. Once and only once, there was a big bang. Oh, or we call it creation. And the whole universe came into being. It never happened before. It's never happened since. None of us were there and experienced it. Not one of us. In our experiences, universes don't snap into being. They just doesn't happen. And yet that once, it did. And scientists 
never saw it, but they can monitor the fallout, the ripples that go through the whole of the universe because of that one event. And here's the claim of the resurrection, the claim of the New Testament, that the resurrection is a once and forever event just like the Big Bang. It's a creation-level event. It is where the new creation came into being. Not just a miracle like every other miracle, but a miracle, an act of God that changed everything just as that Big Bang did at the very beginning. Just as God brought creation into being once, so new creation came into being once. And the ripples go out from here forever. The evidence is there. Scared disciples whose lives changed. People who ran away, who suddenly boldly proclaimed. A church that grew and grew and grew and grew and could not be stopped. All pointing back to that one event. Now, just to be clear, there is a sense that the disciples had experienced dead people coming back to life. Lazarus. Maybe you were thinking about that. But that's a bit different. Because you see, Lazarus, as it were, went into death. And Jesus brought him back. There are a few other examples in the Bible, very rare. And I suppose modern science experiences that too, doesn't it? That we get people who literally die, and then the medical apparatus brings them back. It's a resuscitation. The thing is, they haven't really done anything because what happens eventually is, like Lazarus, they just die again, don't they? Jesus' resurrection wasn't at the level of a dead person coming back to life. It was as if a dead person had gone into death and come right through the other side and had broken the whole thing forever. The once in forever event. Can we believe that? Well, that question brings us right back to Thomas. Just notice a few things about this story which might be helpful. The first is that Thomas wants to believe. This is really important. I could give you a sermon this morning with lots of evidence for the resurrection. There's whole books been written on that. But ultimately, intellectual arguments don't convince people because the first question is, do you want to believe this. Thomas did. Thomas had already committed himself to Jesus. He'd been following him for three years. He'd known how dangerous it was. In fact, there's, there's a lovely bit in, in John's gospel where, where, where Jesus says, I'm going to Jerusalem. And Thomas says, oh, don't go there. It's really dangerous. And, and Jesus says, well, no, I'm going anyway. And Thomas says, oh, we might as well go and die with you. It's a level of sort of the cynicism, but also the commitment that Thomas had. Thomas was committed to Jesus, but as a philosopher said, it's hard to believe because it's hard to obey. Believing isn't just picking through the intellectual evidence and trying to make a judgment. Believing is actually making a decision to trust it. It's making a decision to base your life upon it. And Thomas had already done that. That's why when he saw the risen Jesus finally, he didn't say, oh, now I'm intellectually convinced. He said, my Lord and my God. Because if I believe this is true, then you are my Lord. If I believe this is true, then it transforms my whole life. So Thomas 
was committed to Jesus before he worked out that the resurrection was true. And he was also committed to Jesus' people. I, I, I love verse 24. I've got these all in the wrong order. Uh, don't worry about it. We'll just leave that up there. Verse 24, it says, Thomas, who was called the twin, was one of the twelve and was not with them when Jesus appeared. He was one of them, though, wasn't he? He was one of them. And it wasn't just that. Even after he missed out on what they had, he, he hung around with them. You know, it would have been very easy for Thomas to have said after the resurrection, oh, for goodness sake, these guys have got this crazy notion that Jesus is alive. I'm off because I don't believe a word of that. These insane people. But he hung around, didn't he? He stayed with them. He stuck with them. And here's the message. If you have doubts, even doubts to the point you wonder whether you're a Christian, the best thing you can do if you want to believe is hang around with the other believers. Hang around with them. Stay with them. Sometimes we hold one another up in our doubts. That's what it's about. And by the way, that is, that, that is another message for the whole church. Are we the type of community that people who don't yet believe want to hang around with? Because they look at us and think, these folk have got something. And maybe I have my doubts and maybe I can't believe it, but I want to believe it. I want to get what they've got. I want that joy. I want that resurrection joy in my life. Because that is the way that most people come to faith. They start to know Christians. They start to belong to a Christian place. And then gradually they come to believe it for themselves. And how does Thomas come to believe? Let me see if I can find the right bit. This is the bit I want. Here's a strange thing. Thomas says, unless I see the marks of the nails in his hands and put my finger in the marks of the nails in his side, I will not believe. Just think about that for a minute. If I'm trying to convince you that it's really me, I say, look at my face. Particularly if I haven't got a mask on, it's easier. Or I show you my ID card. Or I do a fingerprint scan, don't I? There's lots of ways of proving I am who I am. What I don't do is say, uh, see my scars. Thomas doesn't say, I need to see Jesus alive. He says, I need to see his scars. I need to see his wounds. Now, why does he say that? It's not as if Thomas is saying, I don't really believe he's dead. He does believe that. He knows that bit's true. His problem is in hoping for the future, not in dealing with what's happened. So why does Thomas say that? It's a strange thing to say when you think about it, isn't it? Not I want to see his risen faith, but I want to see his scars. That's my obstacle to belief. Well, I'm going to give you a suggestion. And here's my suggestion. Thomas's problem isn't with the facts of the resurrection. Thomas's problem is bigger than that. Thomas's problem is the problem of doubt itself. It's the problem that Job and Ecclesiastes and the Psalms and every person of faith wrestles with. You see, what Thomas has gone through that week, Thomas who was already committed to Jesus, is this. He's watched his Messiah die on a cross. He's experienced grief at the loss of a friend. He's had the fury at a government that did this. 
He's despaired as all hope was taken from him. He's feared as his own life was at risk. He's angry at a God who let all that happen, the unfairness, the injustice. He feels the deep, deep emptiness inside where it seems that God wasn't there and didn't turn up. And he needs an answer to all of that from Jesus if he's to go forward. And where is the only place he can find it? And it is to know this. That at the cross, Jesus went through all the agony that Thomas had felt. Jesus tasted the injustice and the suffering. Jesus entered into all of that and bore the scars and came out the other side. That's the only answer that will do A man coming back from the dead isn't enough. A man who was God and went on the cross into all of that emptiness and pain and all of that doubt and all of that questioning, who cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And was raised from the dead. That is the only hope there is. Dietrich Bonhoeffer who wrote from a German prison of war camp shortly before he was executed by the Nazis 76 years ago, two days ago, wrote, only the suffering God can help. Now I would want to add a little bit to that and say only the suffering God who is risen from the dead can help. John Stott wrote a book on the cross of Christ and he ended it with these words. I could never myself believe in God if it were not for the cross. In the real world of pain, how could one worship a God who was immune to it? That is the God for me. He entered our world of flesh and blood and tears and death. He suffered for us There is still a question mark against human suffering, but over it we boldly stamp another mark, the cross, which symbolizes the divine suffering. Then Jesus appeared to Thomas and said, put your finger here and see my hands. Reach out your hand and put it in my side. Do not doubt but believe. And Thomas responded in saying, my Lord and my God. Jesus said, have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet who have come to believe. Believe.